Hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the 83rd episode of Dot Mill Docs, the Military Health System's official podcast. I'm Elizabeth Lockwood. It's Thursday, October 29, 2009, and today's episode continues to recognize October as Women's Health Month. As part of this important monthly theme, we've set up a special page at health.mil slash women's health. There you will find a wealth of information about women's health and links to the many different programs and resources available to female health beneficiaries in DOD's care. This week, we have two guests on Dot Mill Docs. Dr. Diane Seibert is a certified menopause clinician, women's health nurse practitioner, and adult nurse practitioner. She is an associate professor at the Uniformed Services University and is currently the program director for the Family Nurse Practitioner Program. It's the primary source for uniformed nurse practitioners in the Army and the Air Force. Joining her is Major Heather Johnson, an assistant professor in the same Family Nurse Practitioner Program at the Uniformed Services University. Major Johnson has recently been selected for promotion to lieutenant colonel, and both women are credentialed to practice at the National Naval Medical Center. Dr. Seibert and Major Johnson are joining us today to talk about heart disease, the number one killer of women in America. Dr. Seibert and Major Johnson, welcome to Dot Mill Docs. Well, thank you. Thank you for um, inviting us. Um, this is Dr. Seibert. Um, we've noticed in our practices that um, many women come to us for health um, care, but they, they don't seem to express much concern about heart disease. They, if they talk about end-of-life uh, or issues, they often are concerned about breast cancer and osteoporosis and diabetes and Alzheimer's disease, but, but fairly rarely do women actually want to talk about um, what has caused the most illness and death in women, which is heart disease. In fact, just in the time that we've started this discussion, two women have already died from heart disease. In the United States, uh, about one woman dies every minute from heart disease. And by the time we finish this discussion, at least 15 women will have died. Uh, We want everyone to hear this very important information, so stay tuned because we'll be discussing how women can determine how high their risk is and how they can modify their risk. That's a really powerful statistic. Let's back up a little bit. When people start talking about heart disease, what are they really talking about? Well, the term heart disease is often used in, in, in place of the term, a more, more medical term of cardiovascular disease, or sometimes shortened to CVD. So CVD, heart disease, refers to all the conditions that affect the pump, um, which is the heart, the pipes, which are the veins and arteries that, that carry the blood around, and everywhere that the blood goes. Um, but in most, we're, all, we're almost more concerned um, when we talk about the structures that are vital to life, the brain, the kidneys, the extremities, and, and obviously the heart itself. The heart has to pump blood so it, it itself receives um, oxygen and nutrients. The entire system, the whole circulatory system, is complex and interwoven with other body systems like the, kidney system, the kidneys. But for the purposes of today's discussion, when we talk about heart disease, we're primarily referring to the pump, the heart muscles and the structure. Okay. Um, Are there any popular misconceptions when it comes to heart disease with women? Yes. Well, many women still don't recognize that cardiovascular disease is a major health concern for them. Much less do they appreciate that it's a largely preventable and somewhat reversible disease if risk factors are controlled. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in women. And it's so important I want to say that again. Heart disease is the number one cause of death in women. A very important difference between men and women is that women are far less likely to receive appropriate preventive care and treatment. Therefore, women really need to be proactive and know their own risk. Part of this problem is that many health professionals still don't recognize cardiovascular disease as a major health concern for women. And as a result, women are often undertreated either because their risk was not assessed or because providers were unaware of important evidence-based treatment guidelines. 
Another thing to note is that historically, women have been underrepresented in clinical trials, and therefore medications, treatments, and prevention are not as well understood in women. Does that mean that um, there's major differences in heart disease between men and women? Well, you know, it, it is interesting um, because it, as studies are beginning to be done on women, we're finding more differences than we thought existed. There are more, lots of overlaps in risk, but there are some distinct differences in heart disease between the two genders. Um, in fact, there are so many changes now that some recently they've begun considering the, changing the term for heart disease in women and just calling it ischemic heart disease, which is different than what they would, that, what they would talk about in men. So I'll run through a few things that, I, that are uniquely different. Um, both men and women smoke, and I think people are aware that smoking increases the risk for heart disease, but women who smoke have a higher risk for heart disease than men do, than men, smoking men, particularly if they're taking um, com, um, combined contraception like birth control pills because it slightly increases your risk for a blood clot, which um, increases that overall risk for heart disease. Um, diabetes is more common in women, and that disease by itself raises your risk for heart complications. In fact, in women, uh, diabetic women have a fourfold increased risk for heart disease than diabetic men do. So that's a very significant um, impact for women, and that's partly because diabetes seems to counteract the positive effects of estrogen in women. Um, the obesity epidemic is a, a very big concern. Um, we see uh, very early onset diabetes in young girls and teenagers. Um, and then metabolic conditions like syndrome X and polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which obviously polycystic ovarian uh, disease is not present in men. So those disorders continue to increase um, heart disease risk for women. Um, cholesterol and, and um, blood uh, lipids, um, those are different in men and women and seem to have different ramifications uh, if you start to stratify age groups as well. Young women, um, if you have a high LDL level, which is your bad cholesterol, so young women with high LDL level, uh, levels seem to have increased risk. But in older women, as, as women age, when they become 65 to and older, low uh, HDL, which is the good cholesterol, that seems to place them at a, a more significant risk. So it looks like there's a bimodal picture, probably, again, related to estrogen levels. And uh, it seems like triglycerides may eventually turn out to be a better predictor of um, heart disease in women. So it's sort of at the end of the day, the quadruple threat for heart disease um, and stroke, really, is obesity, high blood pressure, um, cholesterol levels and diabetes, and the effects of all of these things uh, combined um, will res can result for women in, in kidney disease and increased risks for heart failure. Okay. Um, does that quadruple threat exist then, like with the same power that it does with women in the military and female spouses of active duty? Well, there are, there are lots of parts to this question. Some risks for heart disease are greater in the military uh, population of women and their spouses, but some is less. For example, women who are associated with the military are more likely to have a higher education level, a higher household income on average, better access to medical care, and they perform more health maintenance activities as a part of their job responsibilities. Also, typically, most cases of congenital heart disease or heart disease when you're born and other chronic diseases have already been detected before women are accepted into the military. Women in the military are less likely to have high blood pressure um, and significant heart disease than their male counterparts, but the military lifestyle is associated with a much higher degree of stress on both individuals and families. 
This stress can increase the risk for divorce. And interestingly, divorce rates for female service members are much higher than for male members. This is very important because divorced women and women who are in unstable relationships have worse outcomes when faced with a serious illness. The added stress from the military lifestyle and its effect on families are a few of the reasons that the service branches are doing so much more to keep families intact. They now offer a much broader range of counseling and support services for families, and they're providing a new degree of anonymity when individuals and families seek help. They have also gone to extraordinary lengths to improve contact and ease stress on service members and their families during this extreme time of extremely heavy deployments. Some question the purpose of the military fitness standards and the physical fitness programs in the military, and they believe that the sole purpose of these very rigid standards is that so members will look good in their uniforms. While this is a secondary benefit, studies support the primary purpose of the program, health promotion and disease prevention. Um, you mentioned the different risks as women age. Do cardiac and uh, heart risks vary across the lifespan? That's a great question, and they do. Um, so I'll just kind of quickly kind of run through some of the, some of the major points across lifespan. Um, most infants, when they're born, most of their heart problems are things that they're born with, uh, structural uh, defects um, as the heart, heart and vessels are being made. Um, as they evolve and grow and turn into children and teenagers, we see uh, more problems, mostly developmental. We start to see some valve, valvular disorders and then the effects of infection and inflammation as, as children um, develop rheumatic heart disease, that kind of stuff. Um, right now, in, in adults, we're starting to see, um, well, and as they age, turn into adults, we're seeing that, the, as I mentioned before, those obesity and diabetes and heart and blood pressure and cholesterol issues start to emerge way earlier in life now. So um, where those, those disorders used to appear um, in adult women in their 40s and 50s, now we're seeing those disorders in um, teenagers and adolescents, and so that's increasing the risk for, um, for heart disease. In adulthood, um, we, as I mentioned, uh, diabetes and cholesterol uh, impact, and then a unique feature in women is uh, the whole pregnancy picture. Um, heart disease itself, women with heart disease, for example, they were born with a congenital heart uh, defect, um, that's about 4% of those uh, of all pregnant women will have some heart disease in pregnancy. Um, most of them, again, as I mentioned, uh, as a result of a congenital anomaly, but sometimes certainly viruses, medications, and some illegal drugs, cocaine, et cetera, can cause heart impact on the heart and, and function in pregnancy. And that can lead to bad outcomes for moms and obviously for babies. Um, but the other piece that's sort of the backside of this is that pregnant women who are um, very heavy uh, at conception or who, just, who develop gestational diabetes in their pregnancy, they have slightly higher blood sugar levels, and those blood sugar levels can cause some of those congenital heart defects that we talked about at the very beginning. Um, they can cause some of those structural problems for infants. So there's a, like the, it's a twofold um, problem. And then finally, um, with, with aging, um, women lose the estrogen levels, um, whether it's from premature ovarian failure or because of hysterectomy and, and an early loss of ovaries in, in uh, fairly early adulthood or natural menopause in the 50s, um, eventually estrogen goes away and then that increases the risk for heart disease up to three times more than women who have um, fairly, fairly uh, high levels of estrogen. 
so there's certainly a lot of factors and variables that go into determining one's risk. Um, it sounds like it's definitely worth a conversation with your healthcare provider. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break for the Dot Mill Docs Health Beat, news and information from the military health system. When we come back, we'll talk to Di- Dr. Seibert and Major Johnson a little bit more about identifying and minimizing the risks of heart disease. Dot Mill Docs Health Beat. Navy Lieutenant Commander Bill Krusoff, a physician who joined the Navy at age 60, deployed to Iraq to pay homage to his son, Marine Lieutenant Nathan Krusoff, who was killed outside Fallujah in December 2006. After his son's death, Krusoff closed his orthopedic practice in Northern California and enlisted in the Navy Medical Corps to serve in a war zone unit caring for Marines. Being in Iraq, he said, did help him understand what his son experienced, but did not soften the pain of his loss. Now 63, Krusoff is assigned to the medical staff at Camp Pendleton Hospital. Defense Department school officials say they've started tracking H1N1 cases. The plan is to have schools based on military installations report weekly the number of confirmed cases of H1N1. Officials are also developing plans to continue children's education if DOD schools must close because of an influenza pandemic. Finally, President Barack Obama signed new legislation Friday that is expected to give veterans better access to quality care. The Veterans Health Care Reform and Transparency Act fundamentally changes how the Department of Veterans Affairs receives health care funding. According to Obama, the reform calls for appropriations one year in advance after more than two decades of regular budget delays. The law also gives VA more funding predictability so officials can better budget their needs, recruit better trained professionals, and upgrade equipment. That's your .mil docs health beat. Log on to health.mil for more on these stories. For the military health system, I'm Matt Beto. All right, welcome back to .mil docs. Today we have two guests, Dr. Diane Seibert and Major Heather Johnson, both of whom teach at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and both of whom also work at the Family Nurse Practitioner Program. Dr. Seibert and Major Johnson, before the break, we were talking in general terms about heart disease definitions and risks. Let's look a little closer at how to recognize signs of heart disease and how women can lower their risks. Um, What type of heart disease signs and complications should women be concerned most with? Well, before we actually get into the details of those, I I wanted to just begin at the the highest level is um, many women um, don't recognize the symptoms just in general. And and the reason they don't is because they don't believe always that heart disease is going to happen to them or that heart attacks do happen to women. It's sort of as reflecting back to the earlier comment about how many women die and how few women actually are concerned about this. But one of the first things I think we need to talk about is the fact that women grossly underestimate their risk and they downplay their symptoms, and then they deny that, that they are having these symptoms. Um, I think where that's coming from is that there's somewhat of a misconception that, that heart disease um, is, is lethal immediately, so that if you have a heart attack, you will just have one and then you'll drop dead or you'll die quietly in your sleep and go drifting out. And and the reality is that heart disease has a much longer and more difficult course for many people and I, and they can cause significant quality of life changes. Um, women need to recognize that they could become a cardiac cripple and that is a very unpleasant way to live, a li- uh, to live your life. So women really need to have an increased awareness of the threat that clogged arteries and coronary artery disease and heart attacks which is also known as an MI or a myocardial infarction, um, and some of the other things that maybe they haven't thought about, what congestive heart failure is, what is angina, enlarged heart syndromes, rhythm disturbances, valve disorders, all of which um, lend to a decreased quality of life for women. So the the awareness of this problem um, needs to be increased just in general. 
and the differences in symptoms between men and women, um, of course, the classic symptoms of a heart condition are chest pain with or without activity, sometimes accompanied by pain in the left neck or arm, shortness of breath, palpitations or an irregular heartbeat, dizziness and swelling in the feet. The problem is that classic symptoms of a heart attack like frank chest pain are absent in women about 50% of the time. So more than half of women don't have that classic chest pain. They're also less likely to have angina or angina. It depends on which school you went to, how you pronounce it. Um, women who present with typical chest pain are less likely to have significant coronary artery disease, so that chest pain is usually not associated with the heart. Women who did have angina were more likely to describe the pain as intense, sharp, and burning versus the heaviness, aching, and pressure that men describe. Women often have more symptoms that are not associated with chest pain, like pain in the neck, pain in the jaw, pain in the back, nausea, or heartburn. The most common presenting warning symptoms, so symptoms that they have in advance, are unusual shortness of breath especially with exercise or activity. So if last week when you climbed the stairs, you didn't have any problems you know, getting short of breath, and this week you do, that could be a warning sign. Some other warning signs are sustained irregular heartbeat, which may have an associated dizziness or vision change, weakness, fatigue, and sometimes sleep disturbances. So that thing waking you up at night may or may not be a hot flash. These symptoms are often unrecognized or, ignore, or ignored by women and by their healthcare providers, or sometimes or often are blamed on stress, anxiety, heartburn, gallbladder, back pain, a pinched nerve. And of note, women are significantly more likely than men to die in the 30 days following presentation to the hospital or the emergency room for a heart attack. And this is partially because of disparities in the diagnosis and treatment. Okay, um, so given that there are warning signs and such, is there any way that women could modify their risk or lessen it at all? Well, some factors can be modified and some can't, and so I'm going to talk about just a few of the things that you cannot modify. Obviously, you can't, you can't change what gender you are, um, at least biologically you can't change that. You can't change how old you are. Um, if you're at postmenopausal, you can't change how old you were at menopause, and you really don't have any control over your family history. Um, and the family history is, is those, those relatives, at, for usually we're talking about first-degree relatives, people that are immediately adjacent to you in the family tree. That would be your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, um, particularly if any of those people have had premature heart disease, which is before age 55 for men and before age 65 for women. Those are things you cannot you can't change. But there are several modifiable risk factors. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of modifiable risk factors, and this is where your relationship with your health care provider comes in very handy. Um, one of the, the biggest ones is to maintain a healthy weight, and that means that a body mass index of less than 25 and a waist circumference of less than 35 for women and for men is less than 40. Prevent diabetes and those metabolic syndromes or treat them if they're, if they're present and exercise 30 to 60 minutes of cumulative time per day most days of the week. That's four to six times per week. Exercise improves the cholesterol profile, it lowers the blood pressure, prevents and treats diabetes, improves mental health, and reduces inflammation. Exercise requirements are more intense for weight loss, so consult your healthcare provider for a fitness prescription if you're wanting to lose weight. We also want to emphasize that you should not smoke. 
And you also shouldn't use chewing tobacco, although we tend to focus more on the smoking. A lot of studies have shown a dramatic decline in heart disease in areas where public and indoor smoking was banned. You should eat a healthy diet that's low in fat, cholesterol, salt, and sugar, and rich in fresh fruits, vegetables, and sources of dietary fiber. Fatty fish two to three times a week also helps. And those fatty fish are mackerel, lake trout, herring, sardines, albacore tuna, and salmon. Control and treat your cholesterol problems and be moderate with alcohol. Those who drink moderately, that is one serving a day for women or one to two a day for men, have a lower risk. And we also want you to prevent and treat your kidney disease and high blood pressure. I think one of the things that many don't realize is that depression, anger, and stress contribute to heart disease. Stress causes direct damage to the heart. It can also cause indirect damage through aggravating those other risks like smoking, high blood pressure, food, weight, and cholesterol. Outlook has been shown to have a substantial effect on death and illness from heart disease. Optimists tend to do much better than those who are cynical or hostile. This may be useful information during these very stressful times of deployments and economic crisis. So ask yourself, is your glass half full or half empty? Well, and then to wrap it up, there's some other things that, that we don't really know enough about, and there's research going on in these areas, but some things that you possibly could modify. Um, one of those would be called, it's called C-reactive protein, and it's a, you, you, you can find out what your level is by drawing a blood test. But it causes inflammation that um, can be reversed you, when you use uh, drugs like statin and aspirins and platelet inhibitors, beta blockers, and estrogens. So the, your level of C-reactive protein is, is sort of based on your genetics, but you can modify that. Um, microalbumin, very tiny protein par particles in the urine, is, a, is an early sign of kidney damage. And sometimes if we, you know, some thoughts are if we uh, can assess um, for this, maybe we can uh, head things off at the past before we, before we get too far down the heart disease road. And then finally, estrogen and hormone replacement um, in women, very controversial, lots of um, new and emerging information on this. But at the end of the day, um, after menopause, um, Hormones decrease, which increases the risk of heart events and strokes. So estrogen is protective. Once menopause has occurred, whether because the ovaries came out or because it was a natural menopause, the risk of heart events increase just in general. It looks like um, right now the studies are showing that women who begin um, hormone replacement, if, if that's what they choose to do for other reasons, hot flashes and stuff like that, right as they enter menopause, they may get some cardiovascular benefit but it is not a reason to start hormone replacement. The studies have pretty clearly shown that, that if you have um, existing heart disease, you're not a good candidate to start hormone replacement therapy for treatment. It's not a treatment method. Okay. Um, and for a final question, now that we know that um, risk is variable and you have the ability to modify it a bit, is there any way that a woman can calculate her own risk? Yes. There are a few options to attempt to quantify your risk. The Reynolds scoring method... Um, coronary calcium score are among them. But for our purposes, I think we're going to use the Framingham risk score or calculator. So let's pretend that I'm a patient and I'm coming in for a screening evaluation. How do I figure out, I'm coming to you for a visit, how do I figure out if I have a risk? Well, let me ask you a few questions. What is your age? Okay, I'm making these up now. Okay. Uh, I'm 52. Okay. Do you smoke? No. Oh, yeah, oh sorry, yes. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> and do you take medicine for high blood pressure? Um, yes. Okay. 
you're female, and I see you've had your cholesterol checked, and your total cholesterol is 208, and your HDL, the good cholesterol, is a little on the low side at 38. When we checked you in, we took your blood pressure, and your top number, or the systolic blood pressure, was 142. That's all we need. Age, gender, total cholesterol, good cholesterol, smoking history, systolic blood pressure, and whether or not you take blood pressure medicines. We'll just plug the information into the Framingham Risk Calculator, and mm, looks like you have a 9% risk of having a heart event in the next 10 years. While you're not in the high-risk category, your risk is still higher than average. You notice that some of the risk factors when we calculate this, like such as weight, um, aren't directly calculated here, but they're indirectly incorporated because of their effect on factors like blood pressure and cholesterol. Okay, is there any way that um, our listeners at home could have access to this Framingham risk calculator without necessarily knowing the science themselves? Yes, our listeners can calculate their own risk by going to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute website. They can find it by typing Framingham Risk Calculator into the Google search tool, um, or we're going to try to get that website posted on on the web page. Okay. Um, for our listeners, there is a website available, and we will post it on health.mil slash docs wherever this um, episode of docs appears online. So it sounds like there's a lot of different things, and while this risk calculator is certainly a good tool to calculate your risk at home, it's definitely important to speak with your healthcare provider about any and all risk you're concerned about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Seibert, Major Johnson, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was definitely informative. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. That does it for us this week on .mil Docs. Once again, please visit health.mil slash women's health for more information and resources about women's health care in the DOD. As part of the military health system's commitment to providing the best information, support, and resources for service members and their families, Health.mil has begun to feature monthly warrior care themes. These themes will focus coverage on specific issues that are of interest to our wounded warriors, as well as all service members at home and abroad. This month's theme is physical therapy. Visit health.mil slash warrior care to learn more about physical therapy programs across the DOD. Join us next week when Dotmill Docs returns in support of November's Medical Technology Month. We'll be talking with Dinah Cohen, Director of the Computer Electronic Accommodations Program, or CAP, about the program and how it provides assistive technology and services to people with disabilities, federal managers, supervisors, IT professionals, and wounded service members. Until then, see you on Health.mil. This program is a product of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, Military Health System. .mil Docs features the most relevant military health topics important to you and your family. If you have questions or topics you'd like to see on an upcoming episode, send us an email at .mildocs at tma.osd.mil. That's D-O-T-M-I-L-D-O-C-S at tma.osd.mil. Visit health.mil for more episodes. 